Hi, family, and welcome, and Happy New Year to you and to your family. We trust that the year's been off to a good start. In today's message, the first one of 2021, can you believe it? We'll be concluding our series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to focus particularly on how God gets given glory when the church is built up and when we edify the church, particularly when we gather. But first, let's join together in worship and give God glory through our songs of praise. For us, 
It's breaking the darkness It's bringing the light To soften the heart of stone Your love is alive It's breaking the darkness And winning the fight And bringing the orphan home Yes, God Thank you, Father You're so great You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. You give life. Shout your praise. 
praise Our hearts will cry These bones will sing Great are you, Lord Yes, all the earth All the earth will shout your praise Our hearts will cry These bones will sing Great are you, Lord, all Great the earth. Oh, all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord, all the earth. And all the earth will shout. Father, we want to thank you. We come to you with grateful hearts. Thank you that we can enter this new year with you. Thank you that we've had opportunity to end 2020 and to start 2021 in a new way. Father, our hearts are grateful. And so as we come to you with our tithes and our offerings, whether we've given them in the week earlier or we're still gonna do them today or in the week ahead, Lord, we wanna give with grateful hearts because you are a good God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you please prepare to give an offering if you haven't done so already. The relevant banking details will come onto your screens, whether you want to make an electronic funds transfer or deposit. Those banking details will be on your screen. And also the QR code for the correct bank account for SnapScan will come on your screens. Thank you, as always, for your generosity and for giving both to the church, but also actually to the Lord. And so today we continue our series, our last part of our series on the gifts of the Spirit. And we're going to look at particularly at how the gifts work when the church gathers and, and what was happening in Corinth and if there's anything we can learn from that in that space. So the title of today's message is Gatherings and the Gifts. Gatherings as the Gifts. So when the church comes together in a gathering, how do the gifts work? Let's quickly recap some of the principles that we've learned during the series so far. Firstly, that... We do not, disqualify, do not disqualify yourself 
or the gift that God gives you. You are an important part of the body of Christ. If you believe in Christ, you are part of the body. So do not disqualify yourself or the gift that God gives you. In the same way, others are also part of the body of Christ, and so we should not dismiss them or the gift that God gives them. In our second week, we also noted that when Paul argues in chapter 12 for a great diversity of gifts, and we looked at what all those different gifts were that he argues for, uh, we noted that the gifts are available to everyone. If you're a believer in Christ, the gifts are available to you, but they are not about you or primarily for you. They're not primarily for you or about you, and the gift does not belong to you. You're a steward of the gift that God gives you. Uh, it's given by the Holy Spirit with someone else or someone's else, a plural, church could be in mind. It's given by the Holy Spirit with others in mind, and the purpose there is always for the common good, to build them up. Then last week, as we considered what Paul was teaching the Corinthians about love and the gifts, we also noted that acting in love, love is the verb, acting in love, and the gifts must go together. And it's when we've got love and the gifts together that we have a true manifestation of God, not only in our gatherings, but also in our communities. Remember always the purpose that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts for is to build up the church. And uh, if we want to talk about what the gifts are, we like the, I like the definition that comes from the New Bible Dictionary, which says that the gifts are God's grace uh, coming into visible effect in word and in deed. God's grace coming into visible effect in word and in deed. And so particularly as we start looking at chapter 14 this week, we need to spend some time considering the Corinthian context. Uh, we're looking at these three chapters as a unit because that's, I think, really the way that Paul intended them to be written and to be read together. The focus is always in these chapters on the gathered church, although once we do learn the principles from the gathered church, we can apply them in our families and in our public spaces as well. But we start by understanding the principles in the context of a gathered church. Occasionally, as I've been sharing with you, I've mentioned that the Corinthian context and questions that Paul is trying to address or areas in behavior that Paul is trying to fix are very different from our own. And this becomes, uh, comes into particular view as we're looking at chapter 14 today. And so perhaps before we get into that, uh, if I may say just a little bit of personal transparency, I think probably this chapter I've wrestled with more than any other chapter in the scriptures. I think I've been wrestling with it for about 20 years. I've taught it in a number of classes with our students that are preparing for the ministry here. Um, but this will probably be the first time I'm really kind of speaking to it in a public space, especially now even on social media and on, on those different platforms. Um, I think the more I study this passage, the more I realize how very different the Corinthian gatherings were from our gatherings. And that there's, it's not so straightforward just to apply what we're reading from their context into our context directly. But also as I study this passage, I, do, I am still convinced that there's enough of the same to direct us when we gather around the operation of the gifts. And probably if you heard me teaching this 10 years ago, what I'll be saying now might be slightly different or new and improved to what you heard then. And hopefully if you hear me teaching on this in a couple of years time, it will be better and more accurate as well. So if we can please uh, understand that what I'm saying is probably not a last word, but a first word. I think maybe rather to start a discussion, not end a discussion in this context. So let's talk about the, the nature and the reality of the Corinthian gatherings. Remember, 
We're talking about a church that gathered over 1,960 years ago. That's a long time ago. And I would guess that if you had to time travel, a Corinthian from the first century church that met in Corinth and you brought them into a service today, let's say a service on Hatfield on a Sunday morning, pre-COVID, post-COVID, whatever kind of service, I think probably the first century Corinthian believer would find our services unrecognizable. It would just be so different from anything that they would have known or experienced. I think they would have recognized the presence of the Spirit. They would have recognized the community and the fellowship of the believers. And they would probably love a lot of what we do because we have so many privileges and advantages that they didn't have. But in essence, the meetings are very different, probably quite unrecognizable in that context. And so a word of caution before we proceed. We need to not automatically apply the principles we learned because I think our contexts are so very different. The problem Paul is addressing in Corinth is very different from a problem we would face or even encounter in many churches today. And so the fundamental question as you read this chapter is you'll see that Paul talks a lot about tongues and prophecy. And so why does he address tongues and prophecy so much to the church in Corinth? He's laid a foundation in chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 12, there's a variety of gifts in a healthy body. There's one body but a diversity of gifts. A healthy body has a variety of parts, a variety of persons, a variety of gifts. But it has to operate, chapter 13, by means of love. And now he probably gets to the fundamental issue, the crux of the problem in the church in Corinth. And for that, he has to address tongues and prophecy because this whole chapter really, in large part, talks just about those two gifts. And so why does he have to do that? What was happening in Corinth? I suspect... Uh, based on the text, that the Corinthian gatherings might have appeared to be quite chaotic. Uh, later on in a chapter when Paul starts ordering the gifts and he, and he talks about the gift of prophecy, he said, you know, two or three people should prophesy, but one at a time. And perhaps what was happening in Corinth is that they were all kind of prophesying at the same time and they were all speaking at tongues in the same time. And so it probably looked like a, a holy chaos and uh, uh, not much order and everyone was doing their own thing in the space. So uh, they at least had a number of people that were prophesying, a number of people that were all speaking in tongues at the same time. And because they weren't a church that was known for good gatherings, Paul, in fact, earlier in the letter tells them that their gatherings are doing more harm than good. And I think that principle is applied to the Corinthian gatherings here as well, that there were probably people trying to show just how spiritual they were by speaking more in tongues. Uh, it's even possible that they only spoke to each other in tongues as a sign of spirituality. Uh, it would have been amazing if they actually understood each other and understood the conversations, but uh, that is really uh, an extended speculation on my, on my part in that space. And so they were using their giftedness to express and to impress others and to try and show how spiritual they were. And particularly based on chapter 13 and what Paul tells them there, it seems that they were doing it in an unloving way. Now, I'm sure if you've been a believer for a while, you've been to one of these intercession meetings. Uh, intercession meetings are valuable and, and important. But you know those meetings you go to where you, know, you kind of walk in and the meeting starts and, and someone starts praying in tongues and, and the longer they pray, the louder they get and then someone else starts praying in tongues or in a normal language or groaning in the spirit and, and they get louder and you know, they adopt these postures and it's spiritual posturing actually and, and what, you know, what's going on there. And so I think perhaps maybe something like that is going on in Corinth at this place, but a lot more chaotic. 
I think if we also consider the nature and reality of the Corinthian gatherings, we need to give attention to size. The Corinthian churches met in households. They didn't meet in big auditoriums and big buildings, or even in Corinth, as far as we know, in big amphitheaters. They met in households. Now, it might have been households that were more of the wealthy people in the town, so that it could accommodate a few more people. But at best, we're talking about a small to a medium-sized group gathering. Uh, you know, scholars estimate 50 or less, and maybe three or four house churches in the whole city at this time. We just don't know. But we do know that the size of the gathering was smaller, probably something much closer to what at Hatfield we would call a community group gathering or maybe a large community group gathering, not what we would experience on a Sunday with COVID-250 in a room or 2,000, 3,000 plus people in an auditorium uh, pre-COVID situation. The size of the gathering is very different. Now, that's important because later on when we see, it would imply that when, say, for example, the Corinthians would know if there was someone who could interpret tongues in the meeting. They would know if such a person was present. They would know when an unbeliever walked in. They would know if someone who was unskilled, who couldn't speak in tongues, walked in. Because of the size of the meeting, they knew each other. Often today in our large gatherings, that's just not possible. We can guess who's in the room, but we don't know. The Corinthians would have known. And so some of the guidelines and, and, and restrictions or advice that Paul gives them in these spaces is based on what they knew and what they could know based on the size of the gatherings. By the way, I think community groups are probably the ideal place to practice the spiritual gifts and, and, and give expression to them. We'll talk more a little bit about that later. I think we have to give consideration to, to time and to liturgy. Liturgy is about the order of the service. Um, we don't know how long the Corinthian services were. We, we tend to be quite focused on time in our services because that's modern day culture. Uh, you know, when a service hits its end, people just stop listening and start wanting to go home to Sunday roast. And the Corinthians never had a Sunday. They never had a day of the week that was just reserved for worship. So they probably met in the evenings and in early in the mornings. And so we don't know about the lengths of the services and what could fit in and what the order of service was. They you know, probably didn't have bands playing worship. We can be pretty certain of that in the first century world. And so when the Corinthians were expressing their spirituality and answering the question, what does it mean to be spiritual in their gatherings, there was probably quite disorderly, quite chaotic, a lot of noise and not much building up and edification that's going on. So we need to understand the nature and the reality of the Corinthian gatherings. Very different from our own, but still some things that are similar enough for us to learn. Something else that Paul addresses in this passage that is very important is the matter of intelligibility and edification. Let me explain what Paul is saying. Intelligibility simply means it can be understood. It's spoken in a language or in a way that those present in the room can comprehend, they can understand. Uh, edification is maybe an older English word, but it means to be built up or to build up. And as you'll see as we read some of the sections in chapter 14, this is very important for Paul, that what is said in the meeting or what gift happens in the meeting must be intelligible because if people can understand it, they can be built up. So intelligibility and edification for Paul are, are linked at the hip. They go together. If it's, not, if it's unintelligible, can't edify. It's a very important principle that Paul lays out in this passage. I want to say up front that because the Corinthian meetings were doing more harm than good, Paul argues so strongly for edification so part of the context of their problem leads Paul to argue very strongly that the meeting's primary purpose must be about edifying 
one another. Paul is not against tongues. You'll see that in, in this passage. Uh, I think a superficial reading might lead one to lean that way, but that's definitely not what Paul is saying in this chapter. So let's get into the verse, the verses for ourselves. We're going to read a couple of the paragraphs. Unfortunately, we don't have time to read them all. They're all important, but for today, I've just tried to pick the ones that are going to help us understand the principles that Paul is trying to lay down. So let's read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 5 together. Verse 1 starts and Paul says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, if I may pause there, I want to, you'll remember at the end of the uh, sermon last week, I said to you that it's love and the gifts together. Here's the textual proof for that. Both of these are commands. Uh, they're in the imperative tense in the Greek, which is the command tense. Follow the way of love. You must love. You must act lovingly. And you must eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. It's a both and, not an either or. And then to the Corinthians, he says, especially prophecy. Why does Paul prefer prophecy? Remember at the end of chapter 12, he said, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And so what we see here is in Corinth, he believes that prophecy is a greater gift. And we need to look at why. And you'll see that shortly in the next few verses. Verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. The direction of tongues is vertical or Godward. Okay, it's towards God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. It's just not intelligible. It's unintelligible. But when one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort, and those are three great standards for any prophetic word, strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. Anyone who speaks to a tongue edifies themselves. So tongues has real value. It edifies you personally. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. It edifies the gathered church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. And this is serious. Paul would like everyone to speak in tongues. But I would rather have you prophesy and by context in gathered meetings. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. There we go. That's our context, that it's in, when the, the church may be edified. So just want to land one principle quite quickly. Uh, interpreted tongues is equivalent to prophecy because it's intelligible. It's been translated. It's been explained, and therefore it can edify. Paul regards prophecy as greater than tongues in Corinth because it will edify the church. It will build up the church as it goes. And so is it important to edify ourselves by praying in tongues? Yes, Paul says when you pray in tongues, it edifies yourself. Later on in one of the paragraphs we're not going to be able to read, he says he prays in tongues more than all of them together. So Paul prays in tongues. It's important to edify yourself. It's about speaking towards God or speaking a heavenly language. And so sometimes in modern day context, when we gather and we say, let's pray in tongues together, what we've done is we've created context for what we are doing. But then also, we are creating opportunity to edify ourselves. But let's be clear, when we're doing that, we're edifying ourselves, we're not edifying one another, because it's not intelligible, it's not understood by the others in the room. When Paul says the Corinthian church gathers, and probably when we gather, it's very important that we don't forget the importance of building one another up or edifying one another in the church. Let's continue reading in chapter 14. Uh, we're going to drop down to verse 9. In the other paragraph, Paul just illustrates his point. In verse, chapter 14, verse 9, it reads, it says, So it is with you. Uh, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, 
How will you know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Now, earlier he's saying it's speaking to God. He's not saying you're speaking nonsense. It's just, it's not intelligible. Verse 10, undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. So in the Corinthian gatherings, they were alienating one another. They were being foreigners to one another. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, this is a good thing. Try to excel in those gifts that build up the church. And this for Paul is the primary point, is that when the church gathers, which gifts are best, which gifts are greater, which gifts are most appropriate, it's the gifts that are going to build up the church. And so what Paul is also alluding to here is that when we meet and gather in the church, we should not be alienated. We should not be foreigners to one another. We should speak in intelligible ways or engage in intelligible ways so that the church may be built up, so that people can get to know each other. So when you gather, go for the gifts that are going to edify the most at that time. Now, we don't have time to read the next paragraph, so I just want to talk through kind of a bit of a highlights package of 1 Corinthians 14, 13 to 19. So first thing Paul does there is he confirms the need for intelligibility in the Corinthian gatherings. He says it's absolutely necessary. He says a few other interesting things. Uh, one of the things, for example, he says is that when you pray in a tongue, when you speak in a tongue, pray that you can interpret it. So yes, you can interpret your own gift of tongues. You can pray that you can interpret it because when you do, then it's equal to prophecy and then it can edify the church. But then Paul also spends some time in this passage talking about praying and singing with one's spirit and singing with one's mind. And here he's not against either one. He just wants each one to happen in an appropriate context. So yes, the Bible does talk about praying in the spirit. Yes, the Bible does talk about singing in the spirit. And Paul says he will do that. Sometimes you sing in the spirit and you're not quite sure what the words mean, but you're singing towards God. You might be proclaiming his praises, but no one can say amen to that because they don't understand you and you are being edified but there's also a time to pray and to sing with your mind because that can then edify you and edify others around you as well this is the verse where passage where paul says he prays in tongues more than anybody so if any of the corinthians were saying that you know they're the most spiritual because they pray in tongues a lot paul says well if praying in tongues is your benchmark for spirituality i pray in tongues more than all of you so if you think you're spiritual Paul is saying, I'm more spiritual in that space as well. And so it's important for us to create context if we do start praying in tongues in a meeting or singing in tongues in a meeting. And generally at Hatfield, we try our best to do that. Our service directors, our worship leaders, they will say, we're going to sing in the spirit now or let's pray in the spirit. We're creating context for people for what is happening. And you'll see a little bit later why that is so important. Because you see, this is what love does. When I'm acting in love, I want to build up the people around me. I do not want to be alienated from them. I don't want to be a foreigner to them. I want them to be built up. I want them to be edified because love is when I consider the other person's highest good. We also don't have time to get too much into the next paragraph from verse 20 to 25. This is a, is a bit of a tricky paragraph and, and many commentators wrestle with it a lot. And in this paragraph, Paul addresses the matter of 
tongues and prophecy as signs. And what's tricky in the paragraph, he seems to be going one way and then he tacks and he goes another way. And the best I can do for you there is probably just to say that the Corinthians thought of tongues as a sign of high spirituality, as a sign of having arrived, of being on the top of the list of being mature. And what Paul is effectively saying to them is tongues isn't a sign. It is a sign, but it's not a sign like you think. In fact, it can become a sign of judgment. Because if an unbeliever walks into the room and goes, you're all crazy, they're speaking judgment on themselves. So Paul is just saying to them, just be careful that when you use tongues, you create context for it so that people don't bring judgment on themselves uh, in this space. And so how are tongues a sign? I don't know if you remember the first time you heard people speaking in tongues. I remember I was attending a church in Bloemfontein at the time and uh, I was new in the church and it was still the years when you used to do the song words on the overhead transparency and so every time there was a new verse or chorus they would change the transparency sheet and so all the songs were new for me and then at a stage people would start singing and then I would be looking at the words and, and I couldn't pick up what they were saying and later on I discovered actually that they'd started singing in the spirit at that time. And so the context then became helpful for me to understand what was happening in that space. What's also important from the earlier paragraph, the previous paragraph and this paragraph, Paul speaks about that when you're speaking in tongues and there's an unskilled person or a seeker, uh, sometimes the NIV uses the word an inquirer in the room. Now the Greek word there is very interesting. Uh, it's, it doesn't sound great in how we use it in English. It's the Greek word idiotes but it literally means an unskilled person. Someone who's unskilled in tongues is present and they don't understand you, or an unbeliever is present and they don't understand you. Now, obviously unbelievers might be unskilled, but I think in the meetings in Corinth, there were three groups of people. I think there were believers who could speak in tongues, who were skilled in tongues. I think there were believers who were unskilled, who did not understand or speak in tongues. And then I think there were unbelievers. And because of the size of the Corinthian meetings, they would kind of know who was who, and they would know how to, if they were operating the gifts in love, they would know how to be considerate and acting the good of the most. Obviously, in our meetings today, this is very difficult to know just based on size. Who's an unbeliever? Who's unskilled? Who's a, a tongue talker? We don't know these things. So Paul addresses some of these matters in that. But then he starts coming to a conclusion in around verse 26. And I'd like to pick up from their reading together where he starts bringing some of the principles down after he's addressed the importance of intelligibility and edification and consideration for who's in the room and who's in the meeting with the church in Corinth. So verse 26 to 28, let's read them together. What then shall we say? So after everything he said in the chapter, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when we come together, each of you, remember that from the first week and the second week, each of you and to one and to another and to another, each of you has a hymn. Now that might be a hymn you wrote. It might be a spiritual song, a word of instruction, a teaching, a revelation that could be a prophecy or it could be something God has revealed to, you, to them from the, the scriptures, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So when the Corinthian church gathered, because their meetings weren't great, their meetings were doing more harm than good, when they met, Everything had to be done so that the church could be built up. That was the primary measure of the Corinthian gathering is, is the church going to be built up? But please note, it's not a singular focus on one gift. It's a participation of the, of the body. Now again, size comes into question. If you're 10, 20 in a room and each one comes, 
there's a lot of edification that can happen. If you're a couple hundred in a room, it's impossible to involve everyone in that kind of space uh, and, and on that level of engagement. Verse 27, Paul goes on and he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at, and one at a time. So not everyone speaking at the same time. And some must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet and the church to, uh, in the church and he should speak to himself or to God. Or as he said earlier, pray that you can interpret it yourself. So there's a control that you have over the gifts of utterance about how you speak and what you speak. And again, it implies knowledge. They would know if there's someone there who could interpret tongues. The size of the meeting would have, would have lent to that. And probably because of the Corinthian overemphasis on tongues, this would have been a necessary restriction for them. Instead of everybody speaking in tongues all at once, just one, two, or three should speak at a time. So Paul is bringing a, a restriction into Corinth because of what was happening in their meetings. Now, I'm not sure if we can directly apply this restriction. I think there's some wisdom in, in limiting numbers, but I think some churches today probably we want to just get everybody praying in tongues because nobody's doing it. And we want to encourage the gifts of the Spirit to be flowing and operating in the meeting, and we want people to be built up. But this requires a little bit of thought and reflection as to how do we apply this and can we apply it directly to our present-day context. Paul not only speaks about uh, tongues, he also, in the next paragraph, speaks about prophecy from verse 29 to verse 33. Same kind of guideline for prophecy. So even though he prefers prophecy, he puts it in the same category as tongues. He says two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh. There must be a discerning of what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now that's completely foreign for how we would think about it today. But it would seem that in Corinth that while someone's prophesying and if, and if someone else in the room recognizes what the prophecy is about or what the prophecy is actually directed towards, they can go, oh, I know, I know what that's about. Uh, today we would regard that as incredibly impolite and, you know, don't interrupt the prophecy or the flow of the Spirit. Something that was option for Corinth. Verse 31. Uh, for you can all prophesy, all can speak in tongues, all can prophesy, in turn, not all at once, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Again, this principle of everyone must be built up. Because the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. So even when the Holy Spirit gifts me, even when the Holy Spirit moves on me and wants to move through me, I still have control. I still have a free will. So I can't just... Um, speak out and say it's uncontrollable, the Holy Spirit made me do it. No, you can control it. You, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you have a choice in how you respond and it can be done appropriately in that space. It might be a really strong unction of the Spirit that you feel like, you know, uh, one of the, I think it's Jeremiah, one of the prophets said that my bones were burning within me. It might be really strong that you feel like you just have to let it out now, but the Spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And this is the pattern in all the congregations of the church. I want you to notice something here in the text. It says, God, remember about the character of God uh, that reflects in the character of our worship? For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Note the text does not say that God is a God of order. It says he's a God of peace. Because I think Paul has wisdom here. Sometimes when we want to impose our own human order, on a meeting. It might be different from God's order. 
I once did a sermon where I showed a picture of a natural forest where all the trees are nicely planted in rows. This is a picture of human order. And then I showed a picture of, uh, sorry, that was a picture of a plantation. And then I showed a picture of a natural wild forest where there's beauty, and it, but nothing's growing in a straight line. That's also God's order. Both can be God's order. It just depends which one is needed for that meeting, which is going to be the thing that most edifies. And so God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And so even in meetings where there's a strong move of the Holy Spirit, as I shared last week uh, around the story from, the, from the, when I was catching in, in times of the move of the Spirit and things like that, it might have seemed a bit wild, might have seemed a little bit out of order, but there was a tremendous peace in the Spirit. There was the sense of the presence of God which brought peace in our hearts at the time. And so as Paul gives these restrictions to the church in Corinth, he also lets them know that you're never out of control. So what's Paul done in these two paragraphs where he talks about tongues and prophecy? What he's doing is he's bringing order to the gifts in Corinth for the purpose of edification. He says, if you want to edify each other in Corinth, if you want your, churches to, your church gatherings to build each other up in Corinth, then I suggest you only have two or three tongues and two or three prophecies so that you can consider them and engage with them and hear what God is saying so that people can be built up. We're going to drop down to the last two verses in chapter 14, uh, not because I'm scared of addressing the next two paragraphs. If you read them, you'll know what I mean. It's just for the sake of time and also just for the purpose of the message. Last two verses in chapter 14, verse 39 to 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, because you're going to build one another up. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. It's an imperative command. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. So two commands. Be eager to prophesy. Be eager to engage in the gifts of the Spirit. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. In case the Corinthians would have thought that Paul is against tongues, he's just been really clear. And, and just as an aside, I don't think there's a timestamp on do not forbid speaking in tongues. I think it carries through all the way through to the present day as well. But why does Paul want everything to be done in a fitting and orderly way? It is not for the sake of things being done in a fitting and orderly way. The fitting and the orderly way is for the purpose of edification so that the church may be built up. And sometimes what brings peace and might bring edification might not fit our definitions of order but they might fit God's definitions of order. And so we must be, keep always in mind the, the reasons for the restrictions, the reasons for the instructions that Paul gives to the church in Corinth is because of what was going on in their meetings but, and the, his imperative, this, just, this need that they had to edify one another. Last week we spoke about this quote from Gordon Fee. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. And last week we focused particularly on that God is a God of love and so our worship should reflect this best interest of the others, this love for one another that we have. We see that love would bring edification. What, Paul, what I also want to apply into this context is that when the Spirit of God moves, there can be order, but the purpose of the order is edification and that God is a God of peace, that the, the presence of God brings a peace in our hearts. And so once when the gifts are operating in a gathering and th there's a lot of things happening, one of the things we want to always note is, is this building people up and is it producing a sense of peace? Not 
calm order decently in rows, a sense of inner peace that God is speaking of in this place. And the purpose is always so that the church may be edified. I have one last principle that I'd like to share with you as part of this series, and it's this, that God is glorified when the church is edified. When you speak to many believers today and they ask, well, why do you go to church? They'll say it's to worship, it's to glorify God. And I think this is very true and it's very correct. We gather to glorify God. And I think there's two elements to that. I think there's the vertical element or the upward element. At Hatfield, we talk about up, in, and out. You'll remember the triangle. There's an upward element when we gather to glorify God. We sing praises to him. We acknowledge who he is. And sometimes if we've had a particularly tough week, we get reminded by our brothers and sisters around us proclaiming and singing about the goodness of God, who he is. Sometimes in the messages and in the sermons that are shared, we get the same effect that God is glorified. We connect vertically with God. We ascribe greatness to him. We honor him for who he is. We love him with all of our hearts. But what 1 Corinthians 14 also makes very clear is there's a horizontal element also for when we gather. And that's the importance and the, and the, the primacy horizontally of edifying each other's. Now, probably when the Corinthians gathered, this is what Paul is saying to them. You need to give attention to the horizontal element of your gatherings so that God may be glorified. Because when the church is edified, the church is built up. We have a healthy church. We have a healthy body. If we go back to the analogies that Paul used in chapter 12, we have a healthy body. And a healthy body does the works of God. And the gifts of the Spirit flow. And the grace of God is made manifest in tangible ways, whether by word or by deed. And then God is glorified. When people get healed or when prophecies come, there's opportunity for God to be glorified. And so when we gather, there's always this vertical element, which is probably for many of us, if we're honest, our primary focus. We come in from difficult weeks and we go, Jesus, I just, I need to sense your presence. I need to be reminded of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. And in that, we get encouraged and we get edified and then we can glorify God for what he has done and we can be grateful and thankful. But then we also need to consider those around us in the gatherings. And so perhaps by some thoughts of applying this message. Which are the greater gifts? Well, in Corinth, the greater gifts were the gifts that were intelligible, the gifts that were understood by everybody because the Corinthian church was in desperate need of edification. And so Paul in Corinth prefers prophecy. And that might be the same in many churches that meet across the world in the present day and the present age. But the greater gifts are those gifts that will most edify the church. Perhaps there's a church that really the greatest gift would be the, the gift of helps, the Holy Spirit bestowing mercy and compassion in the church because there's great need in the community. Perhaps the greatest gift could be a gift of healing because there's great need in the community because that gift would most edify the church. Perhaps for a season, the greatest gift could be the gift of teaching because that's the gift that would most edify the church. So eagerly desire the greater gifts. How do I know what's the greater gift? Well, two ways. One, what's the gift the Holy Spirit is bestowing? And two, what's the gift that's going to edify the church? What's the gift that's going to let the church grow, that's going to make the church healthier, that's going to make the church stronger, so that it can truly be the body of Christ with great diversity and great unity, doing and expressing the will of God on the earth? And so perhaps just some thoughts on application for a year at home at Hatfield. Firstly, community groups, great size, great time, Kind of everybody gets to know each other. It's a great safe space 
where we can practice and learn and sharpen our skills in practicing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So how about next when you go to a community group, come with a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, pray before the time and say, God, what can I bring to my community group this week that's going to build them up and, and help them to be better Christians and to serve you better in the week ahead? And so in small groups, this is a safe and ideal space and probably closer in parallel to what was happening in Corinth in the first century. But we do also have large gatherings today. And so one of the things we do at Hatfield for many decades now is we have a ministry mic where we have usually a pastor on duty. And their job is as, as a large gathering and people sense that the Holy Spirit wants to release a gift into the meeting or a manifestation of the Spirit in the meeting. We ask that people go to that pastor on duty and then that pastor has to exercise the discerning of spirits to go well is it time for this word is it is it God that is speaking is this a word that's just for this person or is it a word that's for the larger community and that pastor and the service director have to work together also to decide on the timing of the word and is it fitting into the overall flow of what we sense the Holy Spirit is doing so there's a bit of a different way that we apply the principles that we learn from the scriptures just simply because of the size of the gathering but we want gatherings with gifts. We want the gifts in our homes and in our families. We want the gifts in our workplaces. We want the gifts in our public spaces where we engage. I do not think we should forbid the speaking of tongues in gatherings. We must recognize that probably it might be for personal edification when I sing in the spirit or pray in the spirit. But when I feel it's for the larger community, I go and we trust that someone can interpret the word and that the body of Christ may be built up. I think many churches today are probably not where the Corinthian church was, where they excel in the gifts. They do not lack any spiritual gift. Chapter 1, verse 7, that was the reality for the Corinthian church. Perhaps many churches today lack spiritual gifts, and so they should adopt practices that can perhaps fan into flame the gifts of the Spirit that are in their midst. And so these are some thoughts that I offer you to start a conversation and to perhaps encourage us to experience and to allow the flow of the gifts of the Holy Spirit more in us, and through us in our small group gatherings and even in our large group gatherings. And so what would the Corinthians have heard about what does it mean to be spiritual? They would have heard that to be spiritual means to be keen on edifying one another. And I think that's a true word for us as well. If I want to express my spirituality, let me love those around me well and make sure that they are built up. And so thank you for joining us on this series and we trust that the last four weeks have been valuable to you in helping you to understand these three chapters a little bit better and also what Paul was after in his teaching around the gifts of the Spirit. And I trust that you would make yourself available for God to bestow, the Holy Spirit to bestow his gifts on you so that the church may be edified. Allow me to pray and then just one announcement at the end. Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit and the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. And Lord, I pray that you make us into a healthy body, a vibrant body, where each part is stepping into the space that you've placed them in. Each part is working in unison and in conjunction with your plans and your purposes, so that we can be a light to the world, so that we can be salt in the earth. This is my prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Louis will be with us next week as we start sharing in the new year. And uh, he will be sharing with us just a word for the new year. And we'll probably be starting a new series shortly after that in January. Trust that you have a blessed week. May God go with you.
tell us where